Uh, if you have a Bible in front of you, if not, you can use one of the Pew Bibles. Turn open to the book of Romans chapter 3. If you're using a Pew Bible, that's going to be page 941. Uh, this is a passage we have dipped into during our series at some point. Uh, it's just such a powerful text, we're going to jump back into it, but I just wanted you to, to turn there, and while you're turning there, I just want to kind of implant a mental image in your mind as you're turning to Romans. Now imagine with me, if you would, American prisoners of war held behind a barbed wire fence in a camp with little food and filthy conditions near the end of the Second World War. On the outside of the fence, the captors are free and go about their business without a care in the world. But inside the fence, the captured soldiers are dirty, they're thin, hollow-eyed, shaven, and desperately hungry. Some die every day. But one day, somehow, a shortwave radio is smuggled into one of the barracks. Now, there's a connection to the outside world. There's news on the progress of the war. Then one day, something strange begins to happen. The captors on the outside of the fence see something unusual taking place with the captors inside the fence. These same weak, dirty, unshaved American soldiers are now smiling. A few are even laughing, and those who have the strength, strength throw up a tin pan and let out a whoop. What makes this so strange to the captors outside of the fence is that in the fence, nothing has changed at all. These American soldiers are still in captivity. They still have little food and little water. Many of them are still sick, and many of them are still dying. But what the captors don't know is that what these soldiers have is news. The enemy lines have been broken through. The decisive battle of liberation has been fought, and the liberating troops are on the way. Freedom is imminent. This is the difference that news can make. The good news is not that there is no longer suffering, pain, and death in the camp, because there is. The good news is that rescue is on the way. A new reality has dawned. Freedom is just around the corner. The news we've been thinking about for the last perhaps eight or nine weeks together is that Jesus Christ has broken into this world and has fought and won the decisive battle against sin, death, hell, and Satan himself. Now there is no longer any question what the outcome will be. The news, we call it, is the gospel. It literally means in the original language, good news. There is no better news humanity has ever heard or ever will hear. I remember a few years ago when I was thinking about the absolute value of the gospel and just the way it radically changed my life and how undeserving I was of it. And I, and I was running errands that day for my family, and I happened to walk into a Costco, and there was this young saleswoman there. She said, first thing she said to me as I came into the Costco is, have you heard the good news? And I immediately responded, you mean that the battle for my soul has been won through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ? I mean, it was just my mind just came out. I was surprised that all that just came out. And she looked at me sheepishly and said, no, the, the discount on direct TV. <laughs> And I said, well, it just doesn't compare, does it? I mean, I, I could have had a third arm growing out of the back of my head, and she wouldn't have looked at me any differently, the poor young lady. But the point is, all good news is only relative to the absolute good news of the gospel. 
Everything is relative to what the gospel teaches us. Furthermore, all news elicits a response. All news is intended to elicit a response, and the gospel is no different. Therefore, the gospel itself elicits a response, and that is what we're talking about this morning. As we end the series we've been doing on the gospel, we're ending with the, 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 the gospel, the, the response that the gospel demands. And so that's what we want to talk about. But before we launch into it, because we've covered a lot in this nine, ten-week series, I just want, by way of review, briefly talk about what we've covered so far. You recall at the beginning of the summer, we talked about how we learned the gospel begins in God and His saving purposes, which flows from the perfections of His wonderful character. In week two, we talked about how does humanity understand and know this amazing reality and that God reveals it Himself in the Scriptures. In week three, we talked about how the gospel is revealed historically, really important that the gospel is not some myth, it's not just some story, a fable, sometimes somewhere, but that there's a historical reality to the gospel, and it was revealed in the historical person of Jesus Christ. The fourth week, we talked about how the gospel is not just revealed in the historical person of Jesus Christ, but it's actually accomplished in His life, death, and resurrection on our behalf. In week number five, we talked about how the gospel, uh, as we receive it, how does it apply to us now? How is what Christ did 2,000 years ago have application to us today? We talked about that was the role of the Holy Spirit, that as we exercise faith in Christ, He unites us with Christ and makes the benefits of Christ's work beneficial for us now. The next week, we talked about how the Holy Spirit when we become, come to Christ, we become a part of a new humanity, a new family, a new community of the redeemed embodied by the church that's manifested in local congregations, in local churches. And then last week, Tim talked about how when we come to Christ, part of this new humanity, when we are united with Him, we are actually changed. We are, the word is sanctified. We become more and more like Him, more and more like what God intended us to be. We now reject the passivity of this world and adopt a passion towards God and His gospel message. We no longer see obedience to God as a drudgery, but we actually see obedience as our great delight because it not only delights the heart of God, but it actually transforms you and I to be the very people God designed us to be. To use the buzzword of our culture, we actually become more authentically who you are the more you conform to be who Jesus Christ is. And so that was the broad contours of the gospel which leads us to today. And the question is, but does this apply to all humanity indiscriminately? Does this mean that this change, this adoption, this being grafted into His family applies to all humanity whether they want it or not? The resounding answer to that is no. The gospel demands a response. No one's going to be forced. No one's going to be coerced into the kingdom. Everybody must respond, and that's what we're talking about this morning, the response of the gospel. So, I'm really just going to make one point. It's going to be a one-point message today, but I'm going to support it with two evidences. The claim I'm making is this. The gospel demands a response because eternal fates hang in the balance because God is fulfilling His master plan to achieve His grand purposes. If we go back to the very first week of this series, we talked about that the gospel begins in eternity past because God has intention to take us into eternity future. And so the gospel demands a response because eternity hangs in the balance because God is finishing His plan. 
So that's where we're going this morning. We're going to take it one at a time. Number one, the gospel demands a response of faith. Hopefully at Romans chapter 3 right now. And I just want to read uh, verses 21 through 26. And, and this is such a, a powerful passage that I, I cannot just read it without actually commenting on it. So I'm going to read through it, make some comments. But we're going to talk about two things that this passage is really getting at. Number one, the, the amazing doctrine of justification by faith, which we are celebrating, by the way, its 500th anniversary of the Reformation next month. 500 years ago, well, October 31st, 1517, the Catholic Church experienced a radical Reformation because one monk by the name of Martin Luther discovered that we can't earn our salvation. We can't merit good works enough for God to redeem us, but we have to be justified by faith. This passage talks about this. This is one of those pivotal things, but also talks about how we receive that, and that's through faith. So, with that commentary, let me just jump into it. So, verse 21, but the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. So, what Paul is talking about here, he's not just talking about the righteousness of God as an attribute of God, as a descriptor of God, but the righteousness of God as an aspect that's available to all humanity who have trust in Him. So, I want us to think of it in that dual way that God is, in fact, righteous, but what Paul is referring to is an aspect of that righteousness that is available to you or I. This righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Okay, this is really important. I know we can't… Sorry about this, but this is an amazing passage. The righteousness of God apart from the law… So, in the context of Paul's writing it, he's saying that the, it's apart from the Old Testament law. There's an aspect of God's righteousness available to all humanity that's revealed apart from obeying the Torah. Now, here's the reality. Nobody in this room probably was thinking about, how do I obey Torah to get the righteousness of God? But everyone in our culture is thinking of some kind of law they're living by, whether it's their own personal morality or the morality established by their culture. We're all thinking, if I'm just good enough somehow, if I'm moral enough somehow, if I keep to my, my moral dictates of my society, God should love me. That, that, that's the way God works, because that's the way we work. If I do X, you do Y, things work out. So, whether you're thinking about the law as in religious law or your own morality, Paul's saying there's a righteousness, a, a reality that we can have, a righteousness of God that's apart from works. Does that make sense? Now, what Paul is saying is that this righteousness is manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The entire Bible, by the way, never teaches righteousness by working it, earning God's love. He's saying the, the law and the prophets attested to this reality, but we so often confuse this, the symbol for the reality. So God says, live this certain way because that's just well-pleasing to me, and that helps you flourish, and we think we have to live this certain way because that's what makes us appealing to God. He says, that's not how it works. So the law and the prophets attested to this righteousness of God apart from the law. Verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Christ for all who believe, because there's no distinction, because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And verse 24, are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Why did God do all this? This was to show God's righteousness, because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time 
so that God might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This, those five verses are so meaty and dense. But what the point is, Paul is talking about justification. Now, that's not maybe a word we use all the time, but we understand the concept. We often use it in an expression like, well, I'm justified to do this, right? In other words, I'm right I'm, a st- I'm right to do a certain kind of thing. I'm, I'm seen as innocent or right to do something. I'm justified, right? And what, what Paul is saying is we are justified by faith. We are made right with God, not because you attended church every Sunday for 10 years straight, not because you were committed, not because you were moral. You were made right with God through faith. Let me point this out. In our, these five verses, notice Paul is saying that the source of this kind of gift, this justification, the source of it is God's grace. Look at that in verse 24. And are justified by His grace. We are made right by God's grace. The source of our standing before Him, that righteous standing, is a gift of grace, Right? But the ground of that justification is actually the work of Christ. Notice again in verse, the end of verse 24 and the 25, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So, the source of our justification is God's grace. He justifies us by His grace as a gift. But how did He make that possible? Well, through the work of Christ, through the redemption that is in Christ. So, the source of our justification is God's grace. It's grounded in the work of Christ, but notice, very important, the instrument of our justification. The instrument, Paul says, is our faith, the very end of verse 26, that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith. Three times in these five verses, Paul says it's about faith, it's about faith, it's about faith. So, we're talking about justification, and it's intricately linked with faith. Notice in verse 22, the very first part of verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith, the second part of verse 25, to be received by faith, and the end of verse 26, the one who has faith. So, God makes us right by faith. Now, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you know that. This is not anything new. But in our culture, and maybe even with an evangelical culture, our understanding of faith is a little bit fuzzy. A lot of people think it, if faith is the thing that you believe in, in spite of the evidence, or you believe something, with, with, even if there, there's no evidence. I was listening to Neil deGrasse Tyson, who's an astrophysicist, and he was asked, and I don't know why scientists are always asked about God's existence, as scientists should know that, but they asked him, well, do you believe in God? And he talked about faith and defined faith as really believing something when there's no evidence. Now, if you're a Christian, you should know that is not the biblical concept of faith, is it? We've actually defined faith here as the skill or ability to live in alignment with God's kingdom principles. That's what we talked about that several months ago. Now, let me give another nuance of what faith is about. I'm going to use three words. Faith is a matter of content. It's a matter of conviction. It's a matter of commitment. Faith is, has substance to it. We have faith in something, right? We have faith in something. The Bible never talks about faith as believing something without evidence. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4, Paul says, the things I have received, the information I have received, I now hand off to you. 
And Paul wrote his protege, Titus and Timothy, in 1 Timothy 4, 6, and Titus 1, 13, it says, look, these testimonies are true, and you do well to place them before the people. Guard the doctrine entrusted to you. Faith has content. In other words, there is an intellectual component to our faith. You have to have faith in something. You have to know something in order to exercise faith. There's an intellectual component to it, but there's more than that. There is a a conviction about it. There is an emotional kind of response to the thing you know. It's one thing to know information about Jesus, that He was a historical figure, that He lived and died and made these teachings, but it's entirely different to know, to have the conviction that this is true, that I agree with this. In other words, there is a, a subjective emotional response to the objective intellectual information. You have to have both of those. But even that's not enough, right? It's not just about knowing information and believing that it's true. James chapter 2, verse 19 says, even the demons know and believe, right? But he says there's something more to it. There's not just an intellectual understanding of the information. There's not just a, an emotional acceptance and agreement with the information. There is a commitment to it. There's a a lifestyle based on what you know and are convinced of. There's a lifestyle change that follows from that. So there's knowledge, there's emotion, and there's volition. So notice what I've done. Faith is not just a matter of knowing things or feeling things or doing things. Faith is all three. There's content, there's conviction, there's commitment. There's an aspect of the intellect that your, 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 your view of reality is being shaped by the contours of the gospel. You understand this intellectually. You are moved by its reality because you're convinced of it's true, so your affections are being turned by that. And then your volition, your will, you're being defined by it is changing the way you live in light of what you know and believe. See, that is faith. That is far from accepting things for lack of evidence. It's actually based on the evidence, internalizing it, and living in light of the evidence. You see, the gospel demands a response of faith because contrary to what popular culture thinks Christianity is, it is not a strategy for peace and happiness in this life. The Bible presents the gospel as something of eternal significance. In fact, literally heaven and hell on the line. Jesus said it Himself in John chapter 5 and 8. I'll have it on the screens behind me. John chapter 5, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears My word and believes, him who sent Me has eternal life. He does not come in the judgment, but has passed from death to life. Then in John chapter 8, Jesus said, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. In each case where the word belief is used there, it's also been translated as faith in other parts of the New Testament. It's the same word, pisteu. It is belief. It is faith. Our eternal destiny, your eternal destiny, hinges on exactly your response to Jesus Christ and the gospel message. Why? Because of our second point makes it very clear. Because the gospel promises eternal fates are on the line. Jesus Himself spoke in very stark contrast about the two ways that every individual faces. Now, go with me to Matthew's gospel. Um, If you're new to your Bible, just turn to the left, several pages. Matthew's gospel in chapter 7. This is the end of one of the most famous sermons that Jesus ever gave. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus is talking to 
not only his followers, disciples, religious leaders, just about anybody, and, he, and he's concluding this amazing sermon with four warnings. We're not going to look at all four, but the point is, in verses 17 to thir- 13 to 14, Jesus is saying, hey, look, there's only two ways in front of you here. And then in verses 15 to 20, Jesus is saying, there's only two kind of prophets you're going to follow. And then verses 21 to 23, it says, there's only two kinds of disciples that are going to follow after me. And then finally, in verses uh, 24 to the rest of the chapter, it says, there's only kind of two foundations you can build your life on. The point is, Jesus is making it very clear that a response is necessary, right? So this is what he says in Matthew chapter 7, verse 13. Beware, excuse me, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. So Jesus is saying, look, there's one way in front of you, and it leads to eternal life, and that way is narrow, and that way is hard, and few people actually find it. And there's another way in front of you, and that way is broad, and that way is wide, and most people are going to find it, and it's easy, and it leads to eternal destruction. And the rest of the chapter, he gives more examples how there's only one, in one sense, there's only one game in town. There's only two sides to this, and you have to make a decision. You have to respond. Now, I realize in this room, probably most people are on board, but in the culture we live in, imagine how antiquarian this sounds to modern ears. Come on, heaven and hell? I mean, don't we know better at this point? Isn't isn't that stuff that only medieval theologians and kings used to scare people in the churches to kind of hold over them and control them with their fate in the afterlife? Doesn't science tell us more? In the 21st century, we we don't need these myths any longer, do we? And that is the cultural narrative that, that we live in. Listen to Nathaniel Hawthorne. He was an American novelist. He is very insightful on this. He says, our creator would never have made such lovely days and given us the deep hearts to enjoy them, above and beyond all thought, unless we were meant to be immortal. Now, Hawthorne, he's just paraphrasing what the Bible teaches in Ecclesiastes 3.11. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, God has made everything beautiful in its time. He's also put eternity into the hearts of man, yet still man cannot fathom what God has done from the beginning to the end. So you get from an American novelist now to a Catholic divine. St. Thomas Aquinas wrote in his Summa Theologica, a masterpiece of Catholic theology. He says, God destines us for an end beyond the grasp of reason. Now, he's not saying that belief in heaven and hell is unreasonable. That's not what Aquinas is saying. He's saying that human reason alone cannot grasp the realities that God is speaking of because human reason cannot comprehend the grace of God. That's what he's saying. The reality is, though, the fact is that everyone, including atheists, a growing number, long for the afterlife. And and, and this just gives evidence what the Bible teaches, that we are standing on the brink of another world. Now, some of you know that Lori and I are taking the family to a, a family vacation to England this fall, so I've been doing a lot of reading British newspapers to see what their culture's like and what it's all about, and I came across a very interesting article in the Daily Mail. It's, it's London's second largest newspaper. The headline caught my attention. It says this, why do even atheists still believe in life after death? The subtitle, in an ever more irreligious age, the number of us who believe in heaven is going up. We asked distinguished thinkers for their take on this curious contradiction. 
Now, the article offers some very interesting reasons that people are beginning to see and reject kind of atheism or believe in an afterlife even though they don't believe in God. But I think one of the reasons is that people are rejecting the emptiness of naturalism. Now, naturalism is a worldview that believes the only thing that's real is what we see in nature. It's a subset of materialism and, and ultimately scientism that believes that science and science alone helps define reality because science is the tool that by which we understand the world we live. Now, let's be clear, we love sciences. Good science stemmed from the fertile soil of Christianity. Right? It was based on the fact that God, being immutable, created a visible a, a world that works a certain way, and because God is immutable and the laws don't change, we can understand the world around us. The scientific method is based on that. But scientism has taken it one step further. It believes that only what science can discover is actually real. This past Tuesday, in Religion News Service, posted this article. Britons reject creationism, but some find evolutionary theory lacking too. The article states, you can't see it, but you see the little transitional evolutionary transition there. I couldn't fit it onto the screen. But the article states that one in five individuals in England and one in three individuals in Canada find current evolutionary theory unsatisfactory or simply reject it as the answer for the origins of life. This is amazing. Science is not providing the answers. Science cannot provide the answers, and believe it or not, it's falling apart. Now, if you are in high school or college, you're not going to be reading this in your current biology textbooks because it takes a while to trickle down, but you have to realize the whole foundation of neo-Darwinism and evolutionary theory is crumbling. It is falling apart. Thomas Nagel, professor emeritus at um, of philosophy and law at New York University came out with a book, Mind and Cosmos. I love the subtitle. Look at it. Why the materialist neo-Darwinian conception of nature is almost certainly false. Now, Nagel is not a Christian by any stretch of the matter, but he is recognizing along with many, many theorists, biologists, physicists, and philosophers that the current narrative that we've all been raised with does not answer the questions of re reality. In fact, they can't even access it. I love Nagel's humility. Look at this next quote that he says. Humans are addicted to final reckoning. That's what we've been talking about. What, what's coming next? What's the end game? But intellectual humility requires that we resist the temptation to assume that tools of the kind we now have are in principle sufficient to understand the universe as a whole. You know what he's saying? We can't even access the answers to the questions that really matter because they can't get to it. The scientific method cannot answer the questions of the origin of life, number one, because you cannot use the scientific method in history, you weren't there. You can't access the questions most fundamental humanity because science only gets to the physical world. And so the, the, the driving premise of his book, Mind and Cosmos, science cannot answer why we think thoughts or where the color blue exists in our mind. Matter, material, cannot produce immaterial thought. But they don't know what to replace it with. And so for a long time, you're not going to see these changes. My point simply is this, my friends. The whole structure of our society is collapsing 
The, the understand the ontological structure, where we come from, what's it all matter, how do we exist, is falling apart. And it's bankrupt and it's empty and people don't know where to turn to. I have one last article I want to show you from the Huffington Post. This is, it's entitled, Grief Without Belief, How Do Atheists Deal with Death? And it was written by an atheist responding to a friend whose father passed away, and she was asking him, how do you deal with death when you don't believe in an afterlife? What? Give me hope. Help me figure this out. And so he wrote this. It's kind of like an op-ed piece. And I want to be clear. I read the article three times just to make sure I understood that the author was not joking or making this up. Because in his article, he says, really what you, you should have speaking at your funeral is a physicist. Okay, I'm going to read to you his words, and this is what he really believes. So I don't, I don't want to create a straw man out there and knock it over. This is what he believes. The reason I'm going to read this to you is it shows why people are losing confidence in, sci- in the kind of scientific narrative we've all lived with. Here's, here's what he writes. You want a physicist to speak at your funeral. You want the physicist to talk to your grieving family about the conservation of energy so they will understand that your energy has not died. You want the physicist to remind your sobbing mother about the first law of thermodynamics, that no energy gets created in the universe and none is destroyed. You want your mother to know that all your energy, every vibration, every BTU of heat, every wave of every particle that was ever her beloved child remains with her in this world. And at one point, you'd hope that the physicist would step down from the pulpit and walk to your broken-hearted spouse there in the pew and tell her that all the photons that ever bounced off your face, all the particles whose paths were interrupted by your smile, hundreds of trillions of these particles have raced off like children, their ways forever changed by you. And as your widow rocks in the arms of a loving family, may the physicist let her know that all the photons that bounced from you were gathered in the particle detectors that are her eyes, that those photons created within her constellations of electromagnetically charged neurons whose energy will go on forever. Okay, I'm almost done. (laughs) But you're getting this, right? Clearly this man has never had to comfort anyone in grief before, right? But this is what he goes on to write. And you'll want the physicist to explain to those who loved you and the congregation that they need not have faith. Indeed, they should not have faith. Let them know that they can measure, that scientists have measured precisely the conservation of energy and found it accurate, verifiable, and consistent across space and time. You can hope your family will examine the evidence and satisfy themselves that the science is sound and that they will be comforted to know your energy is still around according to the law of the conservation of energy. Not a bit of you is gone. You're just less orderly. Amen. <laughs> now, again, I want to be clear that I'm not trying to make fun of this person. I'm not trying to, you know, be this triumphalistic. We Christians have better answers than you guys. But is this the most absurd, despairing thing you've ever read or heard? But yet, this man really believes it. And furthermore, the irony in this article is he later on goes to say that the reason we cannot be sure of the afterlife is no one has ever come back from the afterlife to tell us about it. But we all know, as we've studied, whether or not you agree with the conclusions that the physical resurrection of Christ is one of the most historically verifiable realities in history, whether or not you are a Christian, you cannot deny that fact. 
and the fact that they've never produced a body is one of the most amazing, historical, confusing things for people because they could have easily crushed Christianity by providing a body, and they never did. This is not a message on the resurrection, but it is kind of. The point I'm simply making is the gospel demands a response of faith because eternal fates are on the line. And the Bible understands that very well. From the Old Testament to the New Testament, it is clear that this life, the life we all inhabit, precedes the judgment that determines your eternal status. From Old and New Testament, it has always been clear there will be a judgment that determines our fate and where its fate is decided and final. Daniel the prophet said it in the Old Testament, Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Jesus himself taught it. John 5, 28, 29, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Paul the Apostle taught the same thing in Acts 24, 15. Having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So the gospel demands a response of faith because eternal fates are on the line because, as our final point makes clear, God's final purpose is to display His amazing grace. English playwright Shakespeare wrote that all the world is a stage and the men and women are merely actors who have their entrances and exits, and he was right. But contrary to our selfie generation, we are not the stars on this stage. At best, every one of us is just a supporting cast member, a supporting cast member to push the story along so that the main star shines brighter. And history tells us who the main star is. It is Jesus Christ and His heroic work on the cross that rescues and restores this fallen world to what God intended it to be. When people respond in faith, when you and I respond in faith to the gospel, it is amazing. And His amazing work that takes place, there's nothing quite like it. We're selfish, self-centered, sinful, petty, glory thieves like you and I are transformed to be God-bespotted lovers of the King. There is nothing more amazing than that, and that's the point that both Paul and John were getting at when they talked about our salvation in Christ. I'll close with these two verses. The first one's from Ephesians chapter 1. Paul writes, even as He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, we talked about this at our very first week, He predestined us for adoption according to the purpose of His will. Why? Why all this? To the praise of His glorious grace. And fast forward to John's writing in the book of Revelation chapter 19. John writes this, after this I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Skip down to verse 6, then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude. Who's the great multitude? It's everyone who responds to the gospel message in faith. Man, woman, child, educated, uneducated, wealthy, poor, white, black, it doesn't matter. Anyone can respond. It was like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder. 
crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him the glory. We started this whole series saying that the gospel was about glorifying God because He's the most maximum being to which glory can be ascribed. It is right and fitting that He be glorified. To the degree we feel that that, that, that that shouldn't be right. I mean, how, how could God want to be glorified? What about us? We don't understand. You and I, are, are, we're, we're merely glory thieves. God is the, by definition, most perfect, maximum glorified being. It is actually immoral that He does not receive glory. Have you ever thought about that? It is actually immoral that the most perfect being not be recognized as perfect. And when God changes our hearts to understand that, and we recognize this is His play, His story, He's the star, and we are playing our roles in support of that, the universe works the way it should, and we flourish as a result. Now, it would be crazy to have a message on responding to the gospel and not offer a response. So I'm going to offer a response this morning. As, as the, I call the musicians up, I'm going to pray. If you have never responded to the gospel in faith, I'm going to give you that opportunity. You're not going to have to stand up. You're not going to have to walk down here and stand in the front, nothing like that. But I do want to know who I'm praying with. So as everyone's eyes are closed in a moment, I just want you to catch my eye. I'm just going to look over the, the, the sanctuary and catch my eye. If you want to pray and respond to the gospel in faith, just let me know that that's what you want to do, and I'll pray with you. Now, I recognize in this room, most of you have already responded to the gospel, but the question is, are you still responding? Is the gospel still shaping the intellectual contours of your life? Is it still molding the affections of your heart? Is it still defining the choices that you make? That's faith. If you have not been responding daily, I'm going to ask you, if you, if you want to say, yeah, I've responded, but I'm not responding consistently, continually. I want to respond consistently. Catch my eye as well. Let me pray. Close your eyes. I'm going to ask the praise team to come on up here. Father, we thank you for the gospel message. Lord, we thank you that we are provided an opportunity to make a response to it. Lord, as we conclude our service, I pray, Father, that if there's anyone here that has not responded in faith, Lord, that you, by the power of your Spirit, I know how often you can use foolish things for your glory and Lord, how much more clearly and articulate this message could be, but that's not what you use. It is your Spirit using your Word to bring alive your people. I pray, Father, that you would lead them to respond in faith right now. Father, for those of us who, who have come to Christ and have responded in faith at one time, maybe we are not responding the way we need to every day. Father, if we need grace every day, we need to respond to that grace every day. So I pray as well, Father that there would be those who maybe their lives have been on autopilot for way too long, that they would respond in faith this morning. So right now, even with the praise team, their eyes is closed, everyone's eye is closed. I'm just going to look around this sanctuary, and if you want to pray with me that you want to respond to the gospel message, all i like you to do is catch my eye. If I'm not catching your eye, just wave your hand. Let me know that that's what you're doing. Is that what you're saying? Okay. If there's anyone else that you want to respond, whether it's the first time or the 10,000th time you're saying, I need to respond to the gospel. Is that what you're saying? Okay. Good. Okay. All right. We're going to pray. You do not need to repeat after me. God knows what's going on, but I would like you to listen to what I'm saying, and, and, and I'm going to pray on behalf of you. Lord, we come to you, and I'm tired of being the king or the queen and pretending I am God when, in fact, you are. 
I am tired of living as if you do not exist. I am tired of living according to my own standards and my own ways. I want to turn from these things. I want to live a life that brings you glory, recognizing that all of reality is there because you put it there. Help me to turn from the sinfulness of myself, my pettiness, and my smallness, and help me to turn to live for things that matter. Help me to see you, to know you. Help my mind to be shaped by you, my heart to be formed by you, and my will to define me. Lord, help all that I am to live in faith according to your kingdom. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.cccLH.org.